I'd like to welcome all of you to the 2023 Lenten Lecture Series, Architects of Modernity, the Construction of Our Modern Day Babel. This is now our 13th annual uh, Lenten Lecture Series. Let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we begin our Lenten increased prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, we ask you to bless us, to help purify our hearts and our minds, and make us always be willing to give up good things so as to deepen our relationship with you, you who are the greatest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Great ideas have good consequences, and bad ideas, of course, uh, lead to innumerable errors, sins, and calamities. This year, for our Lenten Lecture Series, we are focusing on well-known modern philosophers, scientists, and movements whose ideas have caused great problems for the world. Uh, the idea for this series was born in a conversation uh, with Drs. Lou, Grant, and Spencer. All of these professors know the importance of understanding the various mentalities and philosophies that shape our modern way of thinking, some of which we are aware of and others which are so now deeply embedded that they seep in without sometimes or even noticing it. While this series will be more intellectually driven, understanding the impact of these architects of modernity is an important part of our life of faith so we can understand God and increase our friendship with him. We are delighted to feature a fantastic lineup of speakers from throughout the local church, many of whom are parishioners and or parents of our school, for our students in our school, such as Drs. Grant, Spencer, uh, Paul, and Lou. We are excited to bring back Dr. David Devil on March 17th, the Solemnity of St. Patrick. Oh, come on. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, by the way, our good Archbishop has uh, lifted the obligation to abstain on that day. If you are a, a Catholic who loves God and St. Patrick, I hope you join me in having um, some corned beef or something else like that. You do have to do another penance, though. Uh, if I were the Archbishop, I would have said, also, you have to attend Mass and do evening prayer, but that's optional. <laughs> Uh, a couple thanks obviously are in due. Uh, Alter Rorschach Society, thank you so much for the refreshments. Appreciate your thoughtfulness and generosity. The maintenance department for setting up again this year, as always. And also uh, those who have helped us so much. Um, uh, as you know, uh, now Dr. Wanless is teaching at the seminary. And I have uh, not a director, but an executive assistant to help organize the Lenten Lecture Series, his wife, Kelsey Wanless. Uh, so that was very helpful. Uh, also make sure that the uh, restrooms, we have restrooms for men and women in the upper part of the hall. And we also, of course, have a handicap accessible bathroom just off or past the chapel off of the elevator. Dr. Liu, our speaker tonight, is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas. Dr. Matthew received his PhD in philosophy from the Sage School of Philosophy in Cornell University, at Cornell. 
after receiving his master's in philosophy from the same institution. His expertise is in Aristotelian and virtue ethics. Though he has published numerous articles on a variety of philo philosophical subjects and regularly teaches a course on contemporary philosophy at St. Thomas. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Matthew Liu, a proud parishioner of St. Agnes, as he offers our first lecture this year to introduce the architects of modernity, specifically focusing on the beginnings of modern philosophy with the philosophies of Bacon and Descartes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd particularly like to thank Father Moriarty and Kelsey Wanless for the invitation. Even though, as he mentioned, my family and I are just regular parishioners here at St. Agnes rather than members of one of the cool parishes like Nativity, from which so many of our past Lenten speakers have come, I shall nevertheless endeavor to live up to the high standard that they have set. So to begin my talk tonight, I want to bring our attention to the well-chosen title of this series, The Architects of Modernity, and I didn't even choose it. Philosophy professors, much like trolls under bridges, are notoriously particular about words. We should begin then by disambiguating some of our terms. Of course, the word modernity and its cognates, modern, modernism, etc., have a wide variety of meanings. Modern can mean, of course, simply recent or contemporary, as when a magazine explores modern trends in interior design or women's fashion. And of course, at the same time, modernism oftentimes has a more fixed meaning in specific fields, such as the renewed interest in mid-century modern furniture, or the so-called high modernism of 20th century literature in the works of figures like T.S. Eliot and James Joyce. In the history of philosophy, In the history of philosophy, however, we use the term modern to distinguish the last of three eras, ancient, medieval, and modern. While there have been recent attempts to complexify this scheme with subcategories like Renaissance or postmodernism, for the most part, we have retained this tripartite schema, which of course means today that we remain within the modern period. Of course, when we attend to this division, it becomes obvious that the division itself could only have been the product of the last of these three eras. Socrates surely would have been surprised to have been informed that he was an ancient philosopher, even if he was quite well weathered when they put him to death. Similarly, the word medieval itself means middle age, which again only makes sense retrospectively. Thus, the very schema itself is a product of philosophical modernity, and indeed establishing the narrative of these three ages is central to the self-conception of modern philosophy itself. How then are these three ages supposed to go? Ancient philosophy is commonly thought to extend from the earliest of the pre-Socratic thinkers, and the tradition from Aristotle places Thales at the head of that line in approximately the sixth century BC. Of course, this relatively late date must strike us as a bit surprising since seemingly every freshman philosophy student has assured his professors that from the beginning of time, man has wondered. <laughs> Nonetheless, this beginning does in fact make a good bit of sense when we contrast the reflections of these so-called pre-Socratics with the earlier expressions of Greek literature. The earlier writers were primarily poets, figures like Homer and Hesiod whose cosmogenies, that is, theories about the origins and order of the cosmos, were primarily mythopoetic. 
In the words of one commentator, this Homeric world was, quote, God-saturated, where the gods may intervene in all aspects of the world, from the weather to mundane particulars of human life, acting on the ordinary world order in a way that humans, limited as they are by time, location, and narrow powers of perception, must accept but cannot ultimately understand, unquote. By contrast, the first philosophers, quote, reject this account, instead seeing the world as a cosmos, that is, an ordered natural arrangement that is inherently intelligible and not subject to supernatural intervention, unquote. This is what actually marks the beginning of Western philosophy, and that's all we're talking about here, Western philosophy. The conviction that the universe was in fact knowable because it was not merely a plaything of the gods, but ordered by principles, what we today might call laws of nature, that could be systematically investigated and thereby understood. This is why Aristotle bestows on the pre-Socratics the title physiologoi, that is, those who seek to understand the logos, the rational order, of phusis, nature, and considers them to be engaged in largely the same kind of project as himself, even though in a deeply amateurish way. Of course, the very name pre-Socratic reveals the judgment of history on these figures. For as important as some of them were, and names like Parmenides, Heraclitus, Democritus, and others are still household names, at least in strange households like mine, <laughs> there is a reason that Socrates has long been considered the father of Western philosophy through his intellectual progeny, the two greatest philosophers in history, Plato and Aristotle. It is perhaps shameful to even attempt a brief summary of the thought of Plato and Aristotle, and so I will not go much further than to observe that while their thinking was vastly more sophisticated than most of their pre-Socratic predecessors, they and Socrates shared with those predecessors a certain common perspective, or better yet, comportment to the practice of philosophy that allows us to meaningfully group them together. Specifically, they shared the conviction that the cosmos possessed a fundamentally objective and rational order, and that sustained, rigorous, philosophical effort could put us, at least in some respect, into epistemic contact with that order that exists entirely apart from us. Fundamentally, and despite their own deep disagreements, the ancient philosophers shared the conviction that the philosophical task was fundamentally receptive, a comportment of openness to the objective reality of nature. The great 20th century scholar Jacob Klein characterizes Aristotle's position thus, quote, man is open to everything about him. Whenever his openness is filled with the forms of the world, he shares in the godlike manner of being and the activity of the divine mind. But this sharing is an intermittent one. Every so often, man is overcome by fatigue. His wakefulness yields to sleep. He has to lie down. His divinity is but a passing shadow as is his very self." Unquote. Along similar lines, Mikhail Waldstein notes that Plato and Aristotle, quote, see human reason as a power receptive for being and all its extent, unquote. It is this receptivity and openness to the objective order of the cosmos and the principles which determine that order which fundamentally characterizes the Greek philosophical tradition. When we turn to the Middle Age of philosophy, which is generally held to begin with St. Augustine in the fourth century and extend over a millennium to at least the 16th, what we actually find is less a new age of philosophy itself, but a continuation and development of the prior Greek tradition. 
From a strictly philosophical point of view, the philosophical outlook of the Middle Ages continued to be dominated first by the thought of Plato and later Aristotle, and this is why many have embraced the notion of a perennial philosophy out of time and place, since if Plato and Aristotle laid out the fundamental principles of human thought, the further developments and extension of subsequent ages really remain within a single tradition. That said, if there is good reason to denominate a middle or medieval age as distinct from the ancient, it is less because of a uniquely medieval philosophical outlook and more because the central intellectual project of the Middle Ages was the synthesis and harmonization of Greek thought with what we might call Hebrew morality. The rise of Christian philosophy was a systematic working out of a comprehensive worldview from these two fundamentally distinct but also deeply harmonious taproots. The story of the loss and then recovery of Aristotle's philosophy is fundamentally fascinating, but sadly beyond the scope of our present account. Nonetheless, it is very much worth emphasizing the fundamentally Aristotelian character of the height of medieval thought, characterized above all by the greatest thinker of the 13th century, St. Thomas, and a few others, of course, like St. Bonaventure. My wife did her dissertation on the seraphic doctor, and so as to avoid the doghouse in this cold night, I suppose I must include him here. <laughs> What the medievals accomplished was, in retrospect, an amazing Herculean effort of intellectual synthesis. As the great Gothic cathedrals were in stone and glass, so the accomplishment of the schoolmen were in philosophy and theology, bringing together the essential insights of Plato and Aristotle with both a revolutionary moral outlook, the aforementioned Hebrew morality, and certain genuinely new concepts like those of the divine persons and a conception of God as creator ex nihilo. Still, these new developments complemented and were successfully incorporated within a basically Greek philosophical worldview, broadening and enriching Greek thought, but preserving its essential metaphysical character. So, we are now finally at the end of this woefully incomplete potted history of Western philosophy, the modern period, which begins in the late 16th or early 17th century, in the wake of, and in some sense continuous with, the so-called Protestant Reformation. What I want to emphasize above all is that the most important early modern figures, such as Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, and even in some respects, the earlier Niccolo Machiavelli, is that they were almost universally deeply schooled in and familiar with the preceding Aristotelian tradition, and more importantly, uniformly hostile to it. Their self-conception as thinkers and philosophers was in reaction to and in fundamental rejection of the Aristotelian outlook that had dominated the Christian intellectual vision since the recovery of Aristotle in the 13th century. And we know this simply because the early moderns are not shy about telling us. For instance, consider Francis Bacon's new organon. I mean, just look at that guy. Look at that guy. <laughs> from Sir Thomas More to Francis Bacon in less than a century. So consider Bacon's new organon, whose very title is a play on the Aristotelian organon, or tool, that is, the collection of works that form the core of what we might call, though he wouldn't, Aristotle's logic and epistemology. In the preface of that book, Bacon avers that the traditional Aristotelian philosophy is odious, and that there is but one hope of salvation that the entire work of the mind be started over again. And from the very start, the mind should not be left to itself, but be constantly controlled, and the business done, if I may put it this way, by machines." Unquote. 
Bacon contrasts his new method with the traditional modes of philosophy, emphasizing the usefulness of the modern mechanical approach to, quote, conquer nature by action, as opposed to the merely rhetorical ability to defeat opponents in an argument. He sarcastically allows that, quote, two clans or families of thinkers or philosophers might peacefully coexist, since after all, the Aristotelian clan can concentrate, quote, on fueling disputation, disputations, adorning discourses, and being successfully employed in academic instruction. Not anymore, sadly. While his new clan sets its sights on, quote, sure demonstrable knowledge leading to power over nature. This makes clear the defining purpose of the Baconian project. The old Aristotelian organon had produced merely what he calls nice probable opinions, which were perhaps adequate for rhetorical disputation, but mostly resulted in, quote, terminating and extinguishing investigation, unquote. Bacon's goal is not wisdom for its own sake, but practical mastery of nature. Similarly, the putative inadequacy of traditional national natural philosophy can be seen clearly in its failure to produce what he calls works, inventionum. Accordingly, he asserts that, quote, there is nothing sound in the traditional notions of logic and physics. Neither substance, nor quality, nor action and passion, nor being itself are good notions, unquote. In one fell swoop, Bacon dismisses the entire traditional Aristotelian philosophy of nature. Unsurprisingly, the defining features of Aristotelian causal explanation, teleology, the defining feature, teleology, is similarly rejected. Final causes, quote, are plainly derived from the nature of man rather than the universe, and from this origin have wonderfully corrupted philosophy, unquote. Predictably, he lauds instead the ancient Greek atomist Democritus, whom Aristotle explicitly dismisses as giving inadequate causal explanations. Nonetheless, Bacon claims it was those atomists who, quote, penetrated more deeply into nature than the others. Accordingly, Bacon thinks that we should abandon these unsound Aristotelian notions and instead, quote, study matter and its structure and structural change and pure act and the law of act or motion for forms, that is, essences or natures, are figments of the human mind, unquote. Of course, these concepts, that is, substance, form, being, etc., are at the very heart of the metaphysical structure of reality articulated within the Aristotelian metaphysics. The pursuit of knowledge of the essences of various substances through the four causes was a defining feature of the exercise of speculative reason in natural philosophy. So, in short, to deny the reality of the forms and of teleology is simply to abandon philosophy as it had always been understood. Furthermore, insofar as Aristotle argues that the intelligibility of nature itself lies in coming to know such essences, to reject them is to reject the possibility of a thoroughgoing realism about knowledge, though that would only become truly apparent later with Kant's rejection of the very possibility of metaphysics in the 18th century. Already in Bacon, we find one of the defining intellectual themes of modern thought the putative explanatory inadequacy of material and efficient causation. Of course, Aristotle himself was already familiar with this sort of claim from the pre-Socratic atomists and criticized its fundamental inability to explain the regularity of nature. It is significant, I think, that Bacon does not actually engage any of Aristotle's arguments, but without argument, simply preemptively dismisses formal and final causation as artifacts of the human mind imposed on nature rather than read off of it. 
Same expression. So we can see from the beginning of early modern philosophy, a rejection of Aristotelian philosophy that is based less on a serious philosophical critique of the explanatory necessity of teleology and more on the simple observation that traditional philosophy has not resulted in an adequate proliferation of works or inventions. Not coincidentally, Descartes manifests the same attitude in the Discourse on the Method with his famous assertion that his new philosophical methodology has opened up, quote, the possibility of gaining knowledge which would be very useful in life and of discovering a practical philosophy which might replace the speculative philosophy taught in the schools. We could use this knowledge as artisans make use of theirs for all purposes for which it is appropriate and thus make ourselves, as it were, the lords and masters of nature. This is desirable, not only for the invention of innumerable devices which would facilitate our enjoyment of the fruits of the earth, but most importantly, for the maintenance of health, which is undoubtedly the chief good and foundation of all other goods in life. And that's, that's not Dr. Felch. Descartes here explicitly thinks that the Baconian, or explicitly thinks the Baconian project through to its logical end. The acquisition of scientific knowledge for the sake of power over nature and the mastery over the limitations of human corporeal nature. Indeed, he even holds out the possibility not only that, quote, we might free ourselves from innumerable diseases, both of body and mind, but perhaps even from the infirmity of age itself, if but we had sufficient knowledge of their causes. In these few lines, Descartes expresses with clarity and precision the fundamental aims of modern thought and its distance from the prior tradition. Whereas the Greek and subsequent Christian philosophical tradition had regarded speculative reason as intrinsically superior to practical reason and the highest goal of rational human nature to lie in contemplation, or beatitude, the modern ethos reverses this priority in favor of the practical, the material, and the bodily. As with Bacon, Descartes is utterly dismissive of Aristotelian philosophy of nature. In developing his physical theory, he, quote, expressly supposed that matter lacked all those forms or qualities about which they dispute in the schools. In the meditations, he considers, quote, the customary search for final causes to be totally useless in physics, unquote. Where Descartes' genius goes decisively beyond Bacon, however, is in his development of a method rooted, rooted in a geometrico-mathematical conception of knowledge that has, in fact, produced many of the extraordinary modern developments in applied mathematics, natural sciences, and technology. Aristotle claims that hitherto, quote, all of the sciences so far discovered, of all the sciences so far discovered, arithmetic and geometry alone are free from any taint of falsity or uncertainty, end quote. Accordingly, these two must serve as models for the re-foundation of the sciences, establishing mathematical certainty as the standard of knowledge itself, quote, the conception of a clear and attentive mind which is so easy and distinct that there can be no room for doubt. By contrast to the certainty and self-evidence available in mathematics, the works of the ancient pagans, like Plato and Aristotle, are, quote, like very proud and magnificent palaces built only on sand and mud, unquote. Accordingly, he insists that the first task of the new philosophy is to, quote, 
reform our thoughts and to construct them upon a foundation which is all our own, unquote. This, then, is the very ethos of modern philosophy, a rejection of the Aristotelian tradition as fundamentally useless and impractical, an embrace of a geometrico-mathematical conception of reason limited to material and efficient causation, the reconceiving of knowledge in terms of mathematical certainty, and finally, an embrace of power over nature as the ultimate end of natural philosophy. You will recall at the beginning of my lecture, I complimented the title of the entire series, that is, The Architects of Modernity. I've hitherto focused on the second half of that phrase, the meaning of modernity. I want now, in the closing section of my talk, to consider the first half, the idea that the early modern thinkers were architects. Indeed, we've just seen Descartes' use of architectural metaphors when he rejects the proud and magnificent palaces of Aristotelian thought, which are fundamentally unsound as they are built only on sand and mud. And in response to this, like Bacon, he counsels that we must begin again. We must raise those magnificent but structurally unsound palaces to construct new secure foundations, the cornerstone of which is mathematical certainty. It is for this reason that he is often known as a foundationalist. Of course, the word architect itself is a Greek word built from the words arche and techne. Each of those terms is of long-standing philosophical interest. The fundamental sense of arche is beginning or origin with a subsidiary meaning of first in place or power. The pre-Socratics, for the pre-Socratics, the arche was identified as the fundamental principle of the cosmos. Techne, on the other hand, is of course the root of our word technology and all of its cognates. And its fundamental sense is of art or craft, that is, the exercise of reason in making. Etymologically, an architect is literally something like the chief builder or the chief maker. What I want to focus on here is the centrality of the notion of making in the early modern conception of reason. We have already seen a focus on practicality and usefulness in both Bacon's complaint that traditional philosophy had produced few works and Descartes' insistence that we needed a practical philosophy to allow us to use knowledge as artisans make use of theirs and thus to make ourselves lords and masters of nature. This reflects a fundamentally different orientation or comportment of reason than what we saw in both the Greeks and the medievals. Such, such a friendly face in contrast. In his Ethics of Geometry, the brilliant but now somewhat forgotten book from the late David Lochterman, he sought to explain the radical philosophical changes that this modern conception of knowledge brings in its way. He advances the thesis that the fundamental difference between modern philosophy and its antecedents is a focus on a new notion of construction, an idea itself borrowed from the then new mathematics. This methodology reflects a fundamental transformation in how knowledge itself was thought to be possible. Lochterman summarizes his key idea up there. Quote, to be modern 
in the most exacting and exulting sense is to be carried along this trajectory from mathematical construction in its precise technical sense to self-deification. The human mind is not nature's mirror. It is nature's generative or creative source." Unquote. In stark contrast to the traditional formulation that truth is adequatio rei et intellectus, that is the correspondence of mind and reality, the moderns redefine the possibility of knowledge itself as a function of the creative power of the mind and will in pursuit of Cartesian mathematical certainty. The intricate particulars of Lochterman's various arguments are well beyond the scope of our present discussion, but his key insight is deeply powerful. What makes his reading significant is his claim that it's not just modern philosophy that's different from the preceding tradition, but modern mathematics is as well. Indeed, he argues that modern philosophy is different precisely because modern mathematics is different. For the moderns, quote, mathematics is essentially occupied with the solution of problems and not with the proof of theorems. And mathematics is most fertilely pursued as the construction of problems or equations, that is, as the transposition of mathematical intelligibility and certainty from the algebraic to the geometrical domain, or from the interior form of the mind to the exterior form of space and body, end quote. In other words, quote, it is geometrical construction and not the axiomatic method of geometrical demonstration, the most geometricus that serves to distinguish modern from ancient mathematics, unquote. For the pre-moderns, the task of geometry was chiefly deductive rather than constructive. Euclidean geometrical demonstration is the paradigm. As Lochterman explains, for the ancients, quote, the source of the intelligibility of the figure is the nature of the figure in its own right. By contrast, for the moderns, it is to be found, quote, in the strategies and tactics certain to bring the figure into visible or bodily being. A distinction in the manner of knowing entails a difference in the mode of being, unquote. For the older tradition, the geometrical task was really geometrical. That is, it takes off from the physical reality of the figure available to us, at least in some respects, through the senses. The new methodology, by contrast, seeks to reconstruct the figure as represented within the new science of analytical algebraic geometry. And though he may get more credit for it than he actually deserves, it's not an accident that we still call it the Cartesian plane. The standard story of the history of mathematics is that modern methods simply give a more precise expression to what the ancients approximated. Lochterman's radical suggestion is that the standard story is incorrect. It is not just or even that the modern methods are more precise ways of knowing what the ancients tried to know. Rather, the modern method of knowing actually entails a difference in the mode of being, his words. That is, what is putatively known. In short, the subject matter of modern mathematics is not the same as the subject matter of ancient mathematics, precisely because of their radically different ways of conceiving mathematical objects. If this sounds radical, that's because it is. A helpful example of this is illustrated by how disturbed the Greeks were by irrational numbers, that is, numbers that cannot be represented by a ratio, such as pi, and which constituted nothing less than a philosophical scandal for the Greeks. Part of the reason for this is that they tended to conceive of numbers in terms of the primary unit, 
which also gives the rather counterintuitive notion to us that the unit itself, that is what we call the number one, is for the Greeks not a number at all. As modern mathematics grew and developed out of the algebraic domain, the emphasis was transformed away from Euclidean geometry and demonstration into the now customary methods of symbolization and formalization that we all learned in school. Of course, the technical superiority of the modern systems is beyond doubt. The superiority consists precisely in the way that our new models of nature enable us to manipulate and control it in historically unprecedented ways, massively expanding the scope of human power. While the ancients could stack the massive pyramids through sheer determination, the medievals could fashion the stunning elegance of Chartres and Notre Dame through unparalleled craftsmanship, only the moderns could bind the entire planet and beyond into what is essentially a single interconnected electromechanical system. I want to close with a suggestion that this new ethos that Lackerman describes has now become amplified in a revolutionary way through the exponential growth of technology into something like an ever-accelerating feedback loop. It has famously been argued, Father mentioned it, that ideas have consequences. But very few people in the history of the world, myself included, are able to actually understand the transformations and the foundations of early modern mathematics. Similarly, few are familiar with the transformations of early modern philosophy to which I have gestured tonight. However, nearly all of us have had our lives utterly transformed by technology. In short, Lochterin's notion of an ethics of geometry has become democratized through technology. The way of being that was inaugurated with the rise of the early modern mathematics has now become the default way of life for 21st century mankind. We have now successfully inverted the relationship between the interior form of the mind and the external form of space and body in much of our daily lives. We live in a world of models, climate models, economic models, digital models of all sorts. In the past, this kind of thinking was much more restricted, simply owing to the sheer intellectual complexity involved. And the 17th century required a world historic genius like Descartes to think, much less live in these terms. Today, however, technology allows the externalization of most of the intellectual heavy lifting required to think in these terms. The construction of digital models, complete with sophisticated physics engines, is now literally child's play. And this is what I mean by saying that this early modern mode of philosophy has now become democratized. It is no longer the exclusive purview of those with the intellectual capacity to reconceive the world in mathematical terms. Instead, nearly all of us do this, even if we don't really realize or understand what actually goes into the models or how they are constructed. The complexity has become hidden by being incorporated into the tools we use on a daily basis and the default modes of explanation offered by nearly everyone around us. As we habitually live in such contexts, we are transformed in our interactions with reality and increasingly comport ourselves more to the representations that fit our models and less to the realities to which the models supposedly correspond. So in other words, you pull out your phone to see what the National Weather Service says, and you don't look out the window. This is why a new ethics governs our lives. 
Without thinking much about it, we all become what we are habituated, habituated to be through the intellectual tools that nearly everyone uses to frame almost all of our discussions. Political, cultural, and even artistic explanations are framed in these sorts of terms, so much, of what, so much so that they become the only currency of explanation available to us. Increasingly, the models replace the putative underlying reality as both the objects of attention and focus of our efforts. I suspect it is precisely this kind of distancing between model and reality that enables us to even take seriously, much less believe, a claim like that someone is actually, quote, a woman in a man's body. As we become more and more accustomed to living in a world of models, we eventually see ourselves and our own bodies in the same sorts of way. As our societies become increasingly intellectualized and technologized, we find ourselves shaped in deep ways by our new modes of life. And this, in turn, alienates us from nature, and above all, human nature. Prescient figures saw this coming, even in the middle of the last century, as, for instance, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man is really just a working out of this early modern, modern ethos as applied to human nature. Our present convulsions around gender and sex are likely just precursors to even more radical changes to come. There is, of course, no straightforward solution to the ethics of modernity. The concrete benefits of te the technological mastery of nature are obvious, and nobody can seriously entertain the possibility of surrendering them. The human desire for control and power is itself a real aspect of that same underlying human nature. However, all of our magnificent technological achievements have increasingly blinded us to age-old truths of human nature that nearly every human culture, East and West, had previously discovered. The ethics of modernity is truly and literally a Faustian bargain. We have gained power at the price of alienation. The initial stages of that alienation were primarily external. However, the age in which we live now shows that it is being increasingly internalized, and it is difficult to see how we will not continue further down the same path. If something like transgenderism can go from unthinkable to the White House in a couple of decades, one shudders to think what sorts of transgressive innovations are next in the context of genetic engineering and transhumanism. In the meditations, Descartes acknowledges that while mankind is far inferior to God in intellect, quote, strictly in itself, God's will does not seem any greater than mine, unquote. That is, will, taken in itself, is boundless. If the primary force of modernity is the expression of will, then nothing will hold it back, even death itself. The quest for immortality was built into the nature of that project from the beginning, as I have shown. It was there in Descartes, and it is the driving force behind the radical experiments that constitute today's Silicon Valley transhumanism. Ultimately, the will has no internal limits. Restraining the modern project is only possible if we can build a culture that embodies an ethos grounded in a deeper understanding of and conformity to a nature not of our own making. As I noted above, this was exactly the project of the perennial philosophy, a comportment of receptivity to being. Modernity reverses this with almost perfect consistency. Theoretical reason is subordinated to practical reason. Intellect is subordinated to will. 
A world denuded of form, essence, and nature becomes mere neutral matter for the exercise of the pseudo-divine human will. That is the essence of the modern project. And whether we like it or not, we all now live in a world wrought by those architects of modernity. Thank you so much, Dr. Liu. Uh, by the power invested in me, I am going to start with the first question. I get to, I get to do this. Um, I love St. Aristotle. And um, just to make sure that everyone understands the uh, comparison between the, these moderns, uh, one thing that might be helpful is if you could just go into briefly the four causes, final form, material agent, uh, and just see how they are um, compared to what the moderns are doing. Thank you. So, modern physics focuses entirely on force and matter. We can approximate those two things. They're not exactly the same, but we can approximate those two things to efficient, what Father called agent, Thomist, uh, <laughs> the agent cause and the material cause. But for Aristotle and Thomas and everyone in that tradition, these are the lowest causes. The lowest causes, the matter that constitutes, strictly speaking, pure potency that constitutes material objects and the agent cause that is the source of change or the cause of change. There are two higher causes. Uh, there is the formal cause, which determines the essence or nature of what a thing is. So for instance, all human beings, all material objects in fact, are composites of form and matter. The form we all share. We have exactly the same form, the form of human being. So there's a form that acts on or works on matter that determines that determines what is substance is. And then the highest form of all is what Aristotle calls the telos, or the final cause. The final cause is uh, called by Thomas, the cause of causes, the highest cause. And it is the cause that explains the ordination of all things towards some end or sometimes purpose that, uh, that is built into the structure of reality. So the key sort of notion here is that if we only have something like efficient and material causation, which the Greeks, that is the Greek atomists like Democritus, were very aware of. For Democritus, he's the one who invents the idea of the atom, the word atom itself is a Greek word. It's an alpha privative. Uh, an alpha privative is you know when we stick an A on something to to you know sort of make the negation of it. So an atom is literally the uncuttable. So an atom can't be cut. Well, that obviously means that the Greek notion of atom is very different from our notion of atom, since the very idea of a subatomic particle would be incoherent. Uh, it's actually an oxymoron. Um, 
So the Greeks, the very early Greeks, already had this idea that the world is just stuff. It's just stuff, matter, that's arranged in particular ways. And the only thing that makes the difference between you and the table you're sitting at is the way the stuff is arranged. If it's arranged in a you-like way, it makes a you. If it's arranged in a table-like way, it makes a table. So that modern notion, or what we so often think of as a modern notion, that, that materialist notion, that the only thing that's truly real is the matter, that goes all the way back to the Greeks. And it was fundamentally rejected by Aristotle for the simple reason, well, not so simple, but for the reason that it can't explain things that we absolutely need to explain. Above all, for Aristotle, how living things are alive. It is a, a scandal to modern philosophy, and it's not an accident. And when I say modern, I mean contemporary philosophy, philosophy to this day, that contemporary philosophers have no account of what life is, none. No remotely plausible account, philosophical account, of what life is. So they're mostly committed to reductive materialism, have no idea what living things are. Aristotle was making that point against the Democritians way back then. And so all that we've really done in a lot of ways has just gone back to the mistakes that Aristotle had already rejected in the fourth century BC. So I'll stop there because I could just keep going. Now, any questions that are not too huge and take too long to ask. That's one of the wonderful things about philosophical questions. Um, I'm going to be biased and go right to one of our seniors, Mr. Draganowski. What exactly, when you're talking about transhumanism, can you explain what you mean by that? Can you repeat that? So the question was, what is transhumanism? Transhumanism, I mean, is a project to transcend humanity, to, to go beyond what it is to be human. So one way of sort of thinking about this is we can, for instance, take deliberate control of evolution. Why should we have or be limited to the nature that we happen to have if we have the intellectual and technological power to control nature itself. So the most obvious sort of examples of this would be genetic engineering, right? And we already have um, uh, really disturbing uh, examples of this, as in um, a embryo that was produced in China with the genes of three parents, for instance, that kind of thing. The next step beyond that would be to eliminate the body altogether. And that's what a lot of Silicon Valley um, billionaires are trying to do. They are literally trying to digitize their minds, which would allow them to be immortal, right? If they could download their minds into a computer, then they don't need bodies anymore. So transhumanism, broadly speaking, is this project to go beyond what it is to be human, to eliminate altogether the, the restrictions of human nature, and especially the restrictions of bodily human nature, um, from things like, I said, genetic engineering, 
but also to these even more radical notions of, of downloading consciousness, you know, the stuff of science fiction. None of which, by the way, will ever be possible from an Aristotelian perspective, so I'm not that worried about that. They'll never can achieve that because they don't know what minds are, so they can't download them. But <laughs> they will definitely do more and more genetic engineering and produce, uh, there's a technical term, chimeras. Chimeras are when you, you genetically engineer, you take the human genome, you combine it with bits and pieces of other things. So we already have chimeras, like things like um, tobacco plants that glow in the dark. So they take genes out of the fireplies, stick it into a tobacco plant, you get a tobacco plant that glows in the dark. Don't know why you'd want that, but you know you could do that. But obviously, what that shows is the technology is there to push this further and further. So there has been kind of a polite uh, restraint from messing too much with the human genome, but that polite restraint is fading rapidly and uh, it won't last. Nice and loud, please. Yes. So is transhumanism then related to the use of CRISPR technology to yeah, absolutely. So the question was, is transhumanism related to CRISPR? So that's just one way to do genetic engineering. That it, and it was a revolutionary discovery uh, to 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 do that kind of gene splicing on that level. So, but the transhumanism is a broader. So that's one example of the kind of uh, methods that would go into doing sort of this transhumanist thing. But transhumanism would describe the the broader sort of movement um, of trying to essentially to transcend the limitations of humanity, to, to, simply to not be human anymore, to go beyond it. So we, if we don't have a human nature, if, if the human nature is simply subject to the will and we have the power to control it, then why, why have bodies that age? Why have bodies that get diseases? And then ultimately, why have bodies at all? I can't explain it, because um, that's kind of the whole point. It can't be explained. But that, that's largely correct. I mean, so, so the, the, what you said, this idea that the will that within the context of modernity, so I, I mentioned this at the end, this idea that we've inverted speculative and practical reason. So those are technical terms. Let me say that, what that means a little bit. So for Aristotle, the highest expression of human reason was contemplation. So what is contemplation? When you really dig that down into it, contemplation, properly speaking, 
is something very much like prayer. It is a contemplation of hotels, of the, the first cause, the highest cause, the cause of causes, which is pure act, which is, in fact, God. So the highest expression of what it means to be human is to do that. But that is very difficult. And very few are able to do it. And even those who are able to do it can only do it, as Jacob Klein points out, intermittently. By contrast, practical reason comes from the Greek word, the, Greek, the word practical itself is, comes from the Greek word praxis, which is the Greek word for action. So practical reason is ordered to, or is reasoning about action, about doing stuff, right? And there are two different categories of doing. There's doing of the sort where we think about moral action, and then there's the lowest sort of doing. The lowest sort of doing on this Aristotelian schema is doing that's ordered to material objects, or in other words, making. That's techne, that's technology. So technology is the lowest form of knowledge for Aristotle because it's the lowest form of practical reason, and practical reason is inferior to speculative reason. So what the reason it's worth going back and, and seeing what people like Bacon and Descartes, what these early modern philosophers are saying, because what they're saying is that Aristotle had this absolutely wrong, that he had it absolutely backwards. But there's no point in doing contemplation. There's no point in trying to speculate about the deep structure of reality. The point of reason is simply to do, is to act, is to make. And so that's where this, this notion of the inversion of intellect and will comes from, or, or an expression of it, where the will now becomes elevated above reason. Instead of thinking that the goal of what it is to be a human being, the highest expression of what it is to be a human being, is a kind of receptivity to being. The highest goal now is a taking control, is a ordering of the external material world in accord with the particular desires or intentions of some agent. So that's what's that's what's going. What that's what I want to say about that kind of thing that you were talking about, right? That sort of confusion that we're seeing is just the the kind of endpoint, the natural logical endpoint of inverting the relationship of speculative and practical reason. Have time for one more question? Um, I haven't done the gallery, so we're going to go way up to the gallery. So, so the question was, would the technological innovations, the revolutionary technological innovations of the last 300 years been possible without this sort of philosophical move? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No way. I think there's no question about that. One way I put this to my students, right, when I'm doing that, is like, imagine that you wanted to go, I don't know, from, say, Rome to uh, Germany. How would you have done it, you know, in the time of Caesar? You'd walk or take a donkey. How would you do it in the time of St. Thomas? You would have walked or taken a donkey. How would you have done it? to the early modern period, you'd have walked or taken a donkey, right? How would you have done it a couple hundred years later? You'd taken a train. 
I mean, there's no question that this philosophical and mathematical transformation enables the rise of science. And it, that the power, the control over nature is, is the other side of the coin. So that's why um, um, there, there's no giving this up, right? We're, we're not, nobody wants medieval dentistry, right? <laughs> nobody, like, I saw an art historian who pointed out, right, anytime you're looking at a painting of like anybody from before the 19th century, there's like a very high likelihood their teeth hurt, right? <laughs> so nobody wants that. So the question is not, can we somehow turn around and go, no, obviously not. The question is, is there any sort of path towards recovery of what has been lost without also losing what has been gained? And this is exactly um, what, um, um, well, I'll just say it. This is exactly how both Carol Watiwa and Joseph Ratzinger understand the, the church's relationship of a recalling of reason to itself. What they want to say is not that we can turn around and go back, because we can't, and we don't want to lose you know, the, the, the good things that have come from modernity, but we've lost a lot, and, and we don't actually have to choose. That would really be the right sort of thing, to, to recognize that there's a sense in which we could have them both if we properly understood their relationship to one another. What happened was we just chucked the baby out with the bathwater. We gained enormous power. Everybody sees that enormous power and thinks that, oh, well, that's obviously a good thing. What's happening right now in our societies, I think, is being it apparent, right, that the things that everybody always thought that people would get married and have babies are literally not happening anymore. Right? So somebody needs to figure out right, what the heck happened and what we can do about it. Um, this is meant in part right, as, as a diagnosis, an explanation that the, the work of recovery is a far future, uh, or a, not far future, I mean, we should be doing it, but it's a thing that, that you know, it's up to us.